0: If not, if you have a Bible and you'll read with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of Galatians chapter 5, the book of Galatians chapter 5, and we'll begin our reading in verse 13, we will read through chapter 6 to verse 5, so again that's Galatians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 13 and reading through to chapter 6 and verse 5. This is what it says For, brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love. Serve one another. Verse 14. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh and these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would but if you be led of the spirit you're not under the law now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these adultery fornication uncleanness lasciviousness idolatry excuse me idolatry witchcraft hatred variance emulations wrath meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. I'll conclude our reading this morning. That's Galatians chapter five, verse thirteen through six and five. And this morning I want to preach on a tough subject, at least it is for me. Uh, The title of our message this morning is A Judgmental Spirit. A judgmental spirit. Now, as I have contemplated this, have um, thought about what we have upcoming, and for those of you that may not know, we have a revival just forthcoming this Friday. Everyone is welcome to come at 7 o'clock. We hope you can be here. But I've tried to learn not to overthink what the Lord would have me to preach, and just to do as He would have me to, and so you pray for me this morning that I would do that. As I was thinking about this scripture this today and throughout the week, um, I began to think about our revival that's coming up, and perhaps we have certain preconceived ideas about what revival is supposed to be like, some of which are probably accurate, the most of which are probably accurate, and perhaps some which are not. But I would say this morning that there is a form of reviving that a Christian needs somewhat routinely. Not that we would just experience a revival that this church has had in the past where a number of people are seeking the Lord and come up for salvation. And certainly that's a wonderful blessing. And if God would bless us with that type of revival, bring it on. And yet, I don't want us to become so narrow-focused that that's the only thing that we seek. Because ultimately, what we want is the Lord to be here and to do whatever work that He desires to do in and among us. Some of the greatest services that we can be in and some of the greatest special meetings like a revival or a youth weekend are when God changes us. We don't just have a momentary high. We don't just have a place that we can point back to... ...as you and I all have had services... ...where we can go back and the power of God is among us in a great way... ...and we experience an overflowing of the Spirit... ...and love abounds and joy abounds... ...and these various fruits of the Spirit are flowing among us... ...and when God grants us reviving like that from periods of time uh, to others... We're grateful for that, but that is not the only way that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells among us. That's not the only thing. There's often been a unfortunate, unspoken expectation that the measure of a revival is in numbers. How many are saved, and how many were baptized, and how many were added to the church, and yet this morning, if God blesses us like that, I I want Him to. But also, there is a... A reviving, perhaps where that word is even derived from as it relates to spiritual reviving, that has to do with God's people being changed. Where you and I, having been saved by God's grace, and yet we'll get into here in a moment this scripture that illustrates some principles that we feel compelled to share with you this morning, yet. The flesh, our flesh, wars against the Holy Spirit and the Spirit that God has placed within us. And this ongoing war prevents us from being made more and more like Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that after God saves us, there's a process that begins. In scriptural words and in religious words, we call it sanctification. Sanctification is that when God saves you, He changes you on the inside. But over the course of your life, that change which has been wrought on the inside has to come out. And God does not intend it to come out randomly, periodically, but rather that we would continue to slowly over our lifetimes grow, as it says here in the Scriptures, into the full stature of Christ. Or in other words, if you look back at yourself 10 years ago, you ought to see yourself having become more like the person of Jesus than what you were 10 years ago. That constantly through your life, he is cutting away you and he is adding to you a character that resembles Jesus. These people in Galatia, I'm not going to get to all this because it'd take the whole time to why this is so particularly rich, because some of it goes into the struggle that the Galatian church was having. But he summarizes it fairly well in chapter 3, when he says, O ye foolish Galatians, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? So obviously what he's indicating here is he's saying when God saved you, It was undeniably a work of the Spirit. It was not of your own works, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 and in Titus and in other places, but it was clearly the work of the Spirit. And yet these Christians were returning back to trying to work in their church and work for the Lord according to the laws of the flesh. If I'll just do this and this and this and this, then I'll please God. And Paul is attempting to combat that. He is not saying that we don't need works. But he is saying we don't need works whose origin is in man's strength. Rather, what we need is for God's Holy Spirit to change a person within and from that changed character, that that changed character would compel them to act in lieu of what God has done. Not, you have been taught do this and do this. Now you just go out and do it without God's spirit guiding you. So he's trying to illustrate this point that he spends a number of chapters doing that. And then he comes to this chapter and he begins to tell us that we've been called to liberty, to freedom. Now I won't get into this, but for me, when I, the Lord at one point in my life used verse 13 to change my life. I've been saved for probably 15 years, and one day it's like you've had this happen where it's like the Lord opens your eyes to a deeper meaning in how it applies to you and it radically shifts your mentality. God did that for me with verse 13 in our scripture reading, that He's called us unto liberty. You're free. But He says, Don't use your freedom to serve the flesh. But rather, love people. And that's where we want to get into our topic this morning. About a judgmental spirit. Because I think, in ver- I think that's what he's setting up for chapter 6 to talk about. So we're aiming for chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. But we have to understand these preceding verses to really get to our aim this morning. I want to be clear about what I mean by a judgmental spirit. Because the world, in an attempt to silence Christians from expressing what the Bible teaches, has said, you're judgmental. <coughs> Judge not that you be not judged. You're a hypocrite. And they've levied these accusations, and oftentimes that has successfully caused Christians to backpedal or has muffled them from speaking the truth. And so I want to illustrate just very quickly what the Bible condemns about a Christian's judgment and what is permitted in a Christian's judgment. So first of all, the Bible teaches us that we as God's church are responsible for declaring what God's standard is to the whole world. Or in other words, we're to tell people, here's what God's expectations are. Here is his rules. Here is his laws. And here is the truth about him. And so when there are certain practices that our nation adopts, it is necessary for us to metaphorically hold the line and say, I did not decide that this activity was wrong. I did not stand in condemnation and say, you know what, I'm gonna determine, I like this behavior, I don't like this behavior and proclaim that to the world but rather the job of the Lord's church is to come out and say, God's word has been divinely revealed He wrote the word of God and unequivocally, here's what God has declared as wrong. Here's what God has declared as right. Here are things we ought not to omit and here are things we ought not to commit. And the world has taken that as people being judgmental. But if truth be told, it is not us being judgmental. It is not even God being judgmental. It is God clearly stating what truth is. That's not being judgmental. God commands us that we are to proclaim the truth. And regardless of how that is responded to, no, a Christian is called to do that. That can be a very difficult thing to do. When people in the world, in your life, live in direct opposition to the word of God, and they ask your opinion, it is a hard thing to do to stand on the word of God and with compassion and love say, this is what God says. And yet, it is essential that we do that. Second type of judgment that God calls Christians to do, we're to be fruit inspectors. We are to be fruit inspectors. I could preach a number of sermons on this, but I'll try to give you the really short version here. There is evidence that people have been born again. There are things, realities, which change within the person. And as we go back to the book of John, excuse me, the book of Matthew, we see John the Baptist baptizing people. And then this group of people who were obviously not saved, obviously not practicing the truth, come down there and John calls them out because of their motive. They had a premeditated motive that was not good. And John gives us, he reveals to us this truth when he tells us, uh, he says, You brood of vipers, who have warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth fruits. Worthy, the King James says, meet for repentance or demonstrating your repentance. In other words, when a person has lived in sin and God, they have repented of their sins, they have put faith in Jesus Christ, he has through his Holy Spirit quickened them, changed them, brought them into life, fashioned their insides after the perfect man, Jesus Christ, there will be a difference within that makes its way out. And John said, before you can just come forward and be baptized, it is essential for your sake that I know or that I discern to the best of the human ability that a change has been wrought in the human heart. So he said, bring forth fruit. At this church, when someone wants to join the Lord's church, that is the standard that John the Baptist set back in Matthew chapter 3 or chapter 4, rather, that we try to uphold. We say, bring forth fruit. What is the evidence of your conversion? And so a person would say, I was living in sin. God revealed to me, and this this isn't exactly what they're saying, but I'm just giving you an example. This was the sin I was living in. This is the condemnation that I sensed in my heart. I was guilty before God, and God let me know it, and I was aware of it myself. I was conscious of it. And then I called out to God, and there was a moment in time where a change occurred inside of me. Where these fruits that Paul lists here in Galatians, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, temperance, meekness, those things were wrought in my heart instantaneously. And I was aware of it. God saved me. We're called, to back up, to be fruit inspectors form of judgment that the Bible licenses in a sense. But there's another form of judgment that the Bible does not license. I don't know. I haven't given a great deal of thought and I don't suppose it matters if it comes natural to some people. Just part of our birth defect in sin that some have a natural bent towards being judgmental. Whether it's Purely conditioning. You grow up in a judgmental house. You hear it every day. Thus you grow up and you're looking through the lens of a tinted lens of judgment. Whatever be the case, it is sinful to have a judgmental spirit. I want to define what I mean by that. The judgmental spirit being addressed today is one that is critical, harsh in their assumptions, slow to give the benefit of the doubt, partial to those whom they prefer, impatient with the sins and shortcomings of those they do not prefer, and slow to confess wrong without first justifying why they're wrong. looking at somebody's actions and quickly making an assessment. Now, there's a lot dangerous about this. And I want to tread softly here because as chapter 6, verse 1 tells us, those that are spiritual restore those that have overtaken with a fault, lest ye also be tempted, right? I am just as man as you are just as fallible to these temptations as anyone else. Nonetheless, the realities of sin must be rebuked regardless of who is guilty. Why is this something dangerous today? The danger of this sin is in its ability to lurk undetected, below the surface of a person's life, and forever go unrepented of, Because it can never be proved to anyone else. Here in the scripture, it identifies what Paul says is the works of the flesh. And it it lists some very noticeable ones. Witchcraft. Adultery. Fornication. And often, if you're like me, when I read through this list, some overshadow the others. And in my mind, a natural hierarchy is built. And I put witchcraft and adultery on top and then I go to the next one and I say here's the next level and here's the next level and here's the next level but notice here all of these sins stem from the very same place and that is your flesh and my flesh and what Paul is doing here is he's putting out here that there is a war that is taking place within you and I one by the spirit on one side who is trying to conform you to all of these fruits that God has placed within us through His Spirit, and on the other side, all of these things that are natural to our flesh. And this is a constant battle which takes place. Here, He's advocating to us, you need to surrender to the Spirit so that your personality, your disposition, and the attitude of your heart is governed by the fruits of the Spirit and not by the works of the flesh. And here's the danger of this particular one if a person is caught in adultery or fornication or witchcraft it's obvious to everyone around them and so a person may be compelled out of love to confront them as the Bible teaches in Matthew 16 that when a brother is overcome with the fault that we're to confront him sometimes with two or three or perhaps even with the church and we're to say listen brother this has overtaken you and here is the danger of that that you stand in condemnation before God that your life is going to the fruits of your spiritual life are going to be diminished, that the flowers of your spiritual life are going to fade, it's going to wreak havoc on others and we are compelled through love to go to someone when their sin is evident and when we know that it's going to harm them, it is our responsibility as those which love them not to allow them to live in a place and constantly dwell in a place where we know their sin is going to constantly take them away from God. Now, in our culture today, Satan has worked strenuously to cause us to separate from one another and has has planted this lie within the heart and mind of our culture that means this. You just let that person do them. You stay away and don't uh, confront them unless their sin begins to affect you. Can you not see the selfishness involved with that mindset? You and I don't have the luxury when a brother or sister is overtaken in a fault, to choose when we go to that person. No, rather, love and the Holy Spirit of God compels us when a brother and sister is overtaken with a fault to confront them. That's very difficult because today, this is me speaking here, most Christians are immature. So, when you're on the receiving end, They give to the natural propensity and the reflex of the flesh, which is what? Building a wall and being defensive. But a mature Christian has learned better. We know better than that. We know the trouble that that brother or sister must have had to come to us. We know the sleepless nights it much has taken them to have the courage To go and say, I love you. I want to confront you with this. And so we guard against the reflex. We say, Lord, help me to hear him. Help me to listen. Unfortunately, that very rarely happens today. Thus, its irregular practice has caused it to nearly go extinct. But let me ask you, while it's unemotional this morning... Well, it's not your sins that we're talking about today. At its core, if you're doing something that everybody notices or your close group of people notice that is harmful to you and to others, don't you want them to come tell you? Don't you want them? You know, the Bible says the kisses of an enemy are deceitful, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. Isn't that true? The world is full of backstabbing. The church is full of sometimes necessarily wounding each other for the good of the person. Here, the danger of a judgmental spirit is what? It's camouflaged. It takes place right there. And what can come out of my mouth, as James tells us, are blessings, when in my heart and in my mind are cursings. And so this morning, I would have you Not be on the defensive. Let's say this morning that you know in your heart. God is revealed to you and it's evident to yourself. I tend to lean towards being judgmental. What harm will it do you to just open your heart today and see what the Lord might speak to you? What harm will it do for you to say, Lord, I really want right to prevail in my heart. You know, that's one of the deceptions about being judgmental is often when a person is judgmental, their thoughts are correct. And so it's, a re, it's an affirmation of what they're doing. Because they look at a person and that person is in grave sin. That's what six one tells us, right? A brother's overtaken in a fault. And so we back up and we analyze the situation. And we say, well, this brother was grown up like this. And his family's like this. And his friends are like this. And his decision making was like this. And then he does this because of this and because of that and because of this. And perhaps this morning, let's just suppose that in all of those things, you are correct. Often Satan, as the Bible teaches us, he is the most subtle creature. He's the most clever, sneaky creature in all of the garden of the world. And he knows that often his entrance into the heart and mind of man is that he piggybacks on things that are right. That's how he gets into our hearts. Is that there is something that is being seen or done that are in fact correct. Then he comes in along its back and infects the rest of it with the poisonous fangs that he has. Very often you may look at the situation. I'll just use myself because that's the easiest to do. And you'll say, Brother Brad does this wrong and perhaps you're correct. Here's why he does it. Here are the motivations. All correct. And so there's a sense of um, inferiority, accomplishment. I have figured it out. And if only my will, my thoughts would prevail and everything would work out. You see, when a Christian defines sin in the form of judgment that we're supposed to and when we're fruit inspectors, if we trace those forms of judgment back, the root is love. Right? So if I'm called, and we are as a church, to define sin to the world and to define righteousness... And if I withhold the truth from people, I don't love them. If I don't define sin appropriately, or if I twist the meaning of sin to to accommodate them, that's not motivated out of love. Because God has a standard to which he is going to hold them accountable. And he's called me to reveal it to him. And if I choose not to, God is still going to hold them accountable. And God's judgment is something that we all ought to fear. So the root of defining sin and that form of judgment is love. The root of being a fruit inspector is also love. I've been in a church before. Somebody came and gave a testimony, and it wasn't very convincing. And so the church said, we love you. But based upon our inspection, let's just wait. What we don't want to do is affirm a false conversion. That is rooted in love. But a critical thought, a mind that overanalyzes the flaws of others, what is the root of that? If it is never going to be used to confront the sin, if it's never going to be used to build up the brother or the sister if it's never going to be used in order to pray for that person, that now by contemplating that you better understand their motivations, you identify with it and you can go before God and you can say, Lord, I remember being just like that and I have fallen to that same sin and I know these motivations. Please prevent this person from doing this. Please open their hearts to these things because I identify. If that's not how it's used, then what is the end goal? If not... A feeling of inferiority. A judgmental spirit is often tucked into an unspoken assumption in the heart of the person. I know better than you. Or rather, I am better than you. Here in the scripture, he lays out for us in verse 13 through 15. Contrasting things. He says, one, when we live by the Spirit, we love. Love abounds. And all the laws is love. And then he gives us the contrast, which is if a church lives in the flesh. And notice what he says in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Here's what happens when a church is silent, but judgmental, ends up coming out. Sometimes in peripheral ways, but eventually those peripheral ways make their way to be the forefront of the way the church functions. If you've ever been a part of a church like that, you know it. I mean, really, if you've ever been a part of a church where you know That as he comes down here later on and there's dissensions and there are cliques and there are people on separate sides and you know what their sides are and you know that if one side comes out in support of something, you can immediately know the other side is going to be opponent to it. And there's a constant break in fellowship and camaraderie that when love is expressed, it seems as though the love on one side is only expressed to the people on their side. And the love on the other side is only expressed to those people on their side. And eventually what begins to happen is what Paul identifies here. We bite and we devour one another through the works of the flesh. And Paul is setting this context. He's setting out this, a church can head the way of love. It can head the way of devouring one another. And then he tells us what leads to devouring one another, the works of the flesh. What leads to loving one another, the fruits of the Spirit. He tells us, I'm going to say this, how do you know if you're a judgmental person? What's a self-analysis you can do? Often, judgmental people elevate right thinking and diminish right doing. And here's the reason why. If I believe right, and it's all in line with the scriptures, there's a satisfaction that happens inwardly, but there's no risk. When I do, when I put my beliefs into action, I open myself to criticism. Suddenly, you're seeing what I believe, right? And the Bible over and over makes a distinction between those who hear and by default believe it in their head to those who do. And what God wants of us is that we be doers of the word. Very little good is done by any religious organization if all they're ever doing is believing and pounding the pulpit saying, We believe more than anybody else. This is true. No, rather what God's design was, was that we would come to deep convictions as to what God's revelation is. But then our deep convictions would at least be matched, if not surpassed, by our living out those things which we so deeply believe. We are required as God's people to live it out. And by living it out, what you'll find is that there are a world of critics who will criticize you. What you did wasn't enough. What you did was too much. What you did was self-centered. What you did was all of these various things. A judgmental person is very often one who does not do their faith. And the reason is because they're afraid. Please hear this this morning. They're afraid others will judge them as harshly as they judge others. You see, their audience is not just other people. Their audience is their own judgment. And yet both of those are wrong. Because a Christian, the Christians in this world who have done the most, there's an identifying quality that all of them have to come to. Is that they come to peace. They don't say it verbally necessarily. But truly in the depths of their heart, they have come to this truth and come to this peace. God is my judge alone. I am here to please him. And if nobody understands, and if I make a skeptic and a critic of all that I do of the whole world, and they wrongly apply to me the wrong motivations, so be it. David, I marvel at David because he had that at such a young age. One of those stories of the Bible that everybody knows, but often we, we lose the little details that make all the difference. I love when he makes his way down to the battle and all these men are afraid to go out and fight because their Goliath stands across the field. And David, he's got his eyes on one thing. Don't you see that in David? The Bible reveals to us his heart. He looks and he sees men terrified, but those men have God with them. Why are they terrified? That man is defying God's name he is disgracing God's name and an outside observer would see that that man's God and way must be superior to all these cowards over here. And David said, no, no, I don't want this to be the case. I don't want the Philistine God and the Philistine way to be elevated in the eyes of the world as right and true. Because I know my God. I know his power and I know he's the one true God. I must speak up because God's name is at stake. Was he thinking about battle glory? I don't believe so. Was he thinking about reward and spoil? No, it was the rest of the army that went and got the spoils. He didn't. No, he was saying God's name should be great. Among all the nations of the world, God's nation should, name should be great. And so he speaks out. And he questions, what's going on here? And his own brother says, I know your heart. His exact words were, I know the pride and the naughtiness of thine heart that you have just come down to see the battle. And many Christians, they get it falsely accused. That's what he did, right? He got falsely accused. And so here's what they do. They back away. That person thinks this, and maybe the whole army thinks that I'm doing it for this reason, but I'm really not doing it for this whole reason, and... Their mind just runs and runs. And in the end, what do they do? They forfeit to preserve their reputation, and yet they forfeit the reputation of God himself. David didn't do that. You know what the Bible says he did? He turned to the other way. He ignored it. He ignored it. You know the story. It's become perhaps the most famous story of all the Bible. I would say somewhat unfortunately, the cross should be the famous story of the Bible, but David's perhaps is. This little boy who goes out with one motivation, to make God's names great, does not fear the judgmental eye of his brother or the rest of the army, goes and fights and wins because his eyes are fixed on God above. This morning, the tendency of the sin of being judgmental and harsh towards others, if you want to see if you're guilty of that, it's always talking, never doing. Always dreaming. But never taking the risk essential in serving God and in having an active, vibrant relationship with God. Listen, please hear me this morning. If all we ever do is speak and believe, our relationship with God will always be limited. Do you know why? Because speaking and believing in our day and in our nation rarely requires faith. Stepping out. We have the First Amendment, right? It protects our I'll admit it's under attack. But as we stand right here, you can go down to the street and proclaim the truth. Every week, I'm online proclaiming the truth. I'm not worried about federal agents coming in here and shutting us down. But when you begin to do. Live out your faith. It's a scary thing. Because like David, what you find is it's not always the enemy that attacks you. Sometimes it can be your own friends that attack you. Right? A judgmental spirit. How do you know you have one? One of the ways is that you're always thinking and never doing. Another way. You hide those areas where you disagree with people. You conceal it. You don't look for resolution to a point of disagreement. You just step away from fellowship with them. There becomes a wall around you. You know what? I just don't want to speak out. Because then they're going to... Then my beliefs are going to be challenged. And what if I'm wrong? What if I'm not right about what I believe? Right Here, Paul is addressing these things. I want to get to verse 1 in chapter 6, and I'll be done this morning. He says, Brethren, if, a, if a, a man be overtaken in a fault, don't judge him. He doesn't say that. That's what, he is, that's what I infer from the background here. We could, bout and, we could bite and devour them, couldn't we? Don't do that. When a brother is overtaken with a fault... I want to pause for a moment and say this. Most relationships within a church in our day are too shallow to obey verse 1. Because what it requires is trust. I trust you to do what's in my best interest. And you trust that I would only speak to you about your faults if they're not personally motivated, but because I have your best interest in mind. He says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. Notice that word overtaken. That's an important word. There are some sins that love ought to cover. There are things, no doubt, that I do that are annoyances. And I think it is Christian duty when those things are preferences and petty annoyances, for us to cover those in love. In other words, leave it there. No reason to have a breach in fellowship over something so petty. But when a person's sin is beginning to harm them and the people around them, it's overtaking them. Here's what it says. Ye which are spiritual. This dawned on me this week. I'd never noticed this before. Spiritual. What does spiritual mean? Well, he just defined it in the previous chapter. Oh, what's spiritual? Those who have the fruits of the spirit love, joy, peace, long suffering, goodness, gentleness, meekness, temperance. He says, Those of you who are walking in the Spirit, look to restore him. With what attitude? one of humility one thing I'm more convinced of now than ever is that no matter how much good we seek to do whether it's preaching the gospel whether it's going to a brother or sister and trying to help them get out of sin our efforts are all in vain unless we go with them with the spirit of humility understanding this It is not our words that are going to somehow completely transform their way of living in their mind. It's going to be God's Holy Spirit speaking those simple truths that we might bring forward and bringing it alive inside of them. Our actions are wholly dependent on God using them. And so we come with humility because we know this. Even if I know that what I'm saying is right... It will have no power in the heart of the person overtaken in a fault unless God sees in it with his grace. Very often, this transpires with high emotions, tempers, anger, accusations. And he says, No, that's how you bite and devour one another. Let me ask you this question. When was the last time that you asked someone you love, you know, and you trust for constructive criticism? This last time you asked your spouse, what is there something that I'm doing that is preventing me from walking with God and helping other people? And then you better be ready. right Here. Verse 2 He says this, bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what burdens is there? He's not talking about like, you have a burden on your heart and I help you carry it. He's talking about your sins. He's saying, forbear. Be patient with that sin which has overtaken that person. And by being patient and helping restore them, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. So think of it like this. When you go to a person and you're trying to help them see the truth, you confront them about their sin, you don't sit back with a judgmental spirit, you're helping them through it, you're forbearing because constantly this is a hard thing for you to deal with. It's saying by doing that, you're fulfilling the law of Christ. He continues in verse 3. He says, For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. I love the contrast here. Then I'm done. He's saying, listen, you're going to forbear the other person's burden. You're not going to look to their sins and flaws and take a false sense of confidence of how good you are. Rather, Look to your own sins. And that's really, I think, what he's getting at in chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. If you're going to have a critical view, look to your own burdens. See what it is that's preventing you from walking more with the Lord. Deal with those things. And then when you're walking with him, there is joy because you've gotten those things and he has helped those burdens, those sins that have prevented you from walking with the Lord. Those things have been removed, but your joy is not found. And this is, I think, what he's getting at in verse five. Your joy is not found in your evaluation, in your criticism of the burdens or sins of others. There is no spiritual benefit to anyone. When I sit in esteemed joy because I have diagnosed you accurately and yet the sins remain unresolved. All of this in what broader context this morning. If you struggle with this, I've done a terrible job bringing out this morning, but if you struggle with this sin, don't you want God to begin to change you Are there not a hundred other things that we could have mentioned? Certainly there are. Are there a hundred other sins that we secretly struggle with in our minds? That no person may discern the impact of spiritual revival upon us. But those fruits would abound in us if those secret sins and attitudes would be removed. Why? Because when those attitudes that separate us are removed fellowship can now be enjoyed as long as they're there we may never know the deep fellowship that we are forfeiting because we're unwilling to confront the secret sinful attitudes of our hearts which keep us separated from God and one another this morning I I hope and pray you would understand the spirit of this message I want you To have less sin and more Christ in you. I want that for you. I don't want... Let me say this. I, I just... You ever seen somebody with great potential and yet there's one quality that holds all that potential back? I had a student one time who was a 6'4", I ran a four 40 could catch the football like nobody you believe. I mean could have gone to any school he wanted to if he wanted to, and one quality he was lazy, killed me. I wasn't a football coach. number of times I'd take him aside and I'd say, "Come on, don't you see the life that you're forfeiting just because you won't." Work hard. Last I heard, years after he got out of school, his life was in shambles because of one quality. You ever wonder if that little leaven in your life, that secret leaven in your life, causes you to forfeit a whole new life you know nothing about because you just won't go to God and ask Him to help you You won't go to a brother or sister and say, help me. I'm overtaken in this fault. I want it to be removed. This morning, I pray that if you have a judgmental spirit today and that's separating you from God and for your brothers and sisters, I'll say this in case you're suspicious. I don't have any of you on my mind. I just felt like bringing that message this morning. Because ultimately, I have learned no matter how hard you preach, it's up to the Lord to convict the heart. And so I pray you would take this message and the spirit of humility in which it's intended today. I'll leave you this last word about this topic, and then I'll, I'm done. A judgmental spirit is hesitant to confess. Hesitant to confess. And that's usually what it takes to begin to conquer that spirit because what does it do it humiliates when we confess but that is the antidote to being judgmental is humiliation